Hi everybody, I hope that uh, nice loud intro has woken you all up on this uh, Monday morning or Monday afternoon as it is now. Um, so welcome to the latest episode of Contract Scotland's Constructing Success uh, podcast and webcast. Um, two seconds, I'll introduce today's guest who's waiting uh, waiting patiently. Um, someone pointed out to me that whilst this is episode three, I've actually never taken a moment to introduce myself. Um, so to those of you who are listening afterwards and not watching on the screen, I'm Alan Shave. I am uh, one of Contract Scotland's directors. I've been with the business here for uh, 18 years now. Um, I would tell you time flies when you're having fun, but uh, that might be a lie some days. So um, there were a few reasons we kicked off this webcast and podcast. One is that uh, as a recruitment consultant, I have a lot to say and I like to share my opinions and I need an outlet for that. Um, the other one is to say that um, through being in business for 30 years, we just have such a, a really good network of, of people that we have crossed paths with over the years. And and it would just be remiss of us not to bring some of those people to a, to a wider audience. So two final things before I do introduce Yvonne, I promise. Um, number one is to say, again, on any platform you are streaming today on, you please do ask us questions, give us comments, give us your opinion. We'll pick those up and uh, hopefully bring them up on screen as we go. And secondly, if you're listening afterwards on Spotify or iTunes, do hit that subscribe button because um, that way you'll be sure not to miss an episode. So enough from me. Let me introduce the fantastic Yvonne Gilfillan. Hi, Yvonne. <laughs> Hi there, Alan. Thanks very much. Hello and good afternoon, everybody, or whatever time you're viewing this uh, around the world. Good morning, yeah. good afternoon, good evening, whatever the case may be. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm really honoured, humbled, and I have to say I'm quaking in my boots right now um, for to be invited. So, Alan, thanks very much. Um, I am a CSR and OSH professional, so my peers tell me I currently work for Babcock International, um, but I have had some 14 years experience within the construction industry through a whole array of tier one, tier two contractors mm. and I also support in consultancy some small SMEs. Um, it's been an interesting journey, a thoroughly enjoyable journey. I love construction. Anybody knows me knows I love construction but the industry is not without its challenges so I'm delighted to be asked to join this podcast today. Now I'd just like to say disclaimer up front because I'm very clear all views are my own. They do not relate to any former employers, any businesses I'm associated with, any organisations I'm associated with. Let's just be clear, that's a disclaimer. So if anybody doesn't like what I have to say, well, you're entitled to your views, but they're my <laughs> views. Thank you. Disclaimer well and truly heard of one. So yeah, thank you very much for that introduction. That's really useful of you. I think, you know, I've said to you before and, and um, that no doubt will come across in this. You're one of the most modest people that uh, that I think I had the privilege to meet, and and um, so I know you don't really like talking about yourself. So I do thank you for for, for doing that introduction o on this subject. Then, so we call this the mental health masquerade, and um, you know, important subject to me both personally and professionally, and something that I thought you know we really need to to be talking about. And so you know, you've as you've given us there in terms of introducing yourself. I just couldn't think of a better guest to bring on for this subject. So um, you and I have had a couple of precursor conversations, which I jested about on LinkedIn, that I think we've uh, done a couple of rehearsals of this accidentally, because when you and I start talking about this subject, well, time flies, doesn't it? So we'll see if we've got a, a chance at all of uh, staying to schedule with this one. 
so topic number one then, right? First header, get us right into it. Is is so we're talking about mental health and construction, and I think important uh, for those of uh, the audience who haven't maybe seen some of the stuff we've been posting on LinkedIn recently is maybe to talk about where have we been with mental health and construction, kind of where are we right now before we even think about the future? Where were we? Fear my mm. Lots of stigma associated with any topic of mental health, depression, stress, anxiety, panic, never mentioned in construction. Why? Because predominant construction is a male-dominated industry that believes in the macho character. There's still that impression that men have to be the macho, roughy tufty You know, nothing bothers me, everything in my stride. The reality is that many, not all, many of the workforce, particularly on the front lines in the, at site level, would drown their sorrows in the pub. Yeah, mm -hmm. Some would go to drugs, but in the main, it was the pub. And that in itself brought us own issues because it doesn't resolve the ongoing challenges that we've had. We've mm -hmm. had an array of individuals effectively not just suffer from, from periods of mental ill health at any given time, but effectively die through suicide. And, and mm -hmm. that's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking for the individual, the loss, the loss to all their colleagues, their teammates, could have been different to their families, to the wider community and society at large, because we lose a very valuable person, a mm. valuable individual in life. So that's where we were. <laughs> Are we much better? Oh, we've got lots of awareness now of mental health. Um, we have mental health first aiders. We've got well-being policies, etc. Not all businesses have that. I would just like to say that mental health um, and mental ill health is actually costing the construction sector about £2.75 billion every year. £2.75 billion. Right, an incredible yeah, me. Why? Why is that? Have things fundamentally changed? Who knows? Is it society that's changed? Is it the workplace that's changed? I don't know. But that's the equivalent to, um, again, for some tradespeople, there was a survey done just last year and the tradespeople lost the equivalent of 50 and a half years of work in one year in mm. tradespeople that were surveyed. Now, again, I'm thinking from a programme perspective, from a, a profitable perspective, that makes no sense whatsoever. We already have a skill shortage in the construction industry. Why then would we put our... our people in a position where they're struggling with their mental health or mental mm -hmm. ill health and effectively are not supported. So despite an array of very high profile awareness campaigns, there's still that stigma associated. There's also the stigma associated with still being able to speak to their employers. So 92% of builders recently, just last year through an Institute of Government and Public Policy survey, they indicated that 92% of builders felt that they could not speak to anyone at their employee or their employers regarding their mental ill health. Hmm. So are they really supported? So, you know, th there's a lot going on there. Drugs and alcohol testing is used sporadically across the industry. Not every site. Not every project has DNA testing. So does it take away the issue of drinking to try and, and drown the sorrows? No, it doesn't. For those who effectively don't want to go to the alcohol side of things, there's the drugs. Drugs are, are, are getting quite 
known in our industry. Why? Because again, mm. people are looking for uppers, they're looking for downers, they're looking for any substance Sometimes. that can either take their mind off things or alternatively, um, effectively give them the energy or the perceived mm. energy to carry on and carry on in the hours. Um, you, there's you, a whole uh, host of know, things there. The, 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 you know. I, I don't even think I can call this scene setting, you know, if it's about where we are, but it's just, it's just, it, it's, some of it is incredible. Um, you know, if some of these numbers and some of what you're saying doesn't resonate and hit home with people about just the scale of the challenge that we face here. Um, I, I put in my LinkedIn post, I think, introducing this uh, webcast about a CITV survey, but that was, that was done back in 2020 and, and, one of the questions they asked was about how many businesses for all the construction professionals interviewed, how many of those businesses, their employers had an approach to mental health, had a policy. And I thought, well, it was three years ago, four years ago now, right? And I know a lot's happened in the world, but things must have moved on a bit in that time. And then you sent me a thing through last night that even as late as October of last year suggested that 40% of construction businesses still don't have a mental health policy that was reported by itv so it's in the mm. national news and it was reported in october which again is appalling because we have all these companies saying oh we're doing this and we're doing that and the pr is great and we're spending hundreds of thousands on pr teams but mm. the reality is whatever it is that they're doing with these sign bites isn't getting to the people that need it you know mm -hmm. when we've got a situation where we've got uh, just the past year 507 suicides in construction yeah, why? Why has it got so bad? Now, let's just be very clear, however, when we talk about mental ill health, the construction industry has the largest, in terms of industry sector, prevalence of mental ill health mm -hmm. and the absenteeism that, that arise from that. Now, there's a whole array of factors. That doesn't necessarily mean that it relates specifically to the construction industry. However, mm -hmm. what it does do is say there's, there's a flag here. Is it that the conditions outside the workplace are exacerbating and then that brings in pressures into the workplace? Or is it the workplace then affecting the external conditions because mm. of the pressures that we have where we are driving effectively cost to completion, programme um, completion. We need to keep our resources down. We don't have sufficient resources. There's a skill shortage in the industry. And it's about constantly cutting margins to win business we need to keep that going and unfortunately it's a really unhealthy cycle mm. um, in addition to that we still have now a culture within our industry i'm going to try and put this as polite as possible but we have dinosaurs in our industry Mm -hmm. And I apologise. No, I'm not going to apologise for that. I'm just going to say we have dinosaurs in our industry that do not have the compassionate, empathetic leadership skills to look after people and put their people first. What we have is, dare I say, some senior managers, not leaders, because they're not leading, they're not mm. nurturing, they're not supporting the people. They are senior managers responsible for businesses, responsible for costs that aren't looking at the bigger picture here. I have heard time and time again, well long before I even became a mental health first aider, negative comments, slanderous comments made in offices, uh, not just in closed meetings with senior managers about personnel, but in open plan offices out in the social realm when someone said that someone was off on the site because of stress. 
That should never be the case. What we should be mm. looking at as a business internally is why is that? What's what's occurring? And we don't have that yet. So what needs to happen, there needs to be a cultural shift. Now, if these senior managers can't get on board, then kindly, please. We don't want to lose your expertise, but kindly allow some more um, empathetic, compassionate leaders to come through the ranks. Let's hold on to your expertise, but come away from the people side of it because it's mm. not working. Sorry, I'm now very I strong. <laughs> Yeah, you no, no. You and I touched on this beforehand because it, it raised an interesting question in my mind, um, which is which is this one, which is to say that um, you know those traditional leadership, those dinosaurs that you mentioned. Um, if we, I don't like using say a younger workforce, but if generationally uh, the younger people in the workforce are kind of working their way through, and they are perhaps more engaged and aware of emotions and stress and how work affects them and things like that. Um, there's a bit of a disconnect there, right, then, between that leadership and, and that workforce. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's not, it's not just at leadership level. So if we look at, we have mental health first aiders, that training invariably is given to individuals within the office space or mm. line managers, supervisors who have no interest in people skills. It might be very engineering focused, might be operational focused, planning focused, et cetera. They don't really care about the people aspect. They're not naturally people engaged or people people, as I would call them. Mm -hmm. And they are told it's mandatory you're doing that mental health first aid training. Why? Mm -hmm. Because the client team's expecting us to undertake the mental health first aid training. Oh, and we get brownie points when it comes to a considerate constructor scheme awards system if we have so many mental health first aid trainers so we need to meet a quota and the business decided that you're going on that course so they go on that course dear me that doesn't mean that because that person's gone on a training course or whatever else now that's a whole other subject alan for the mm. down in terms of the quality of training some you know i think i, I mentioned where we've got training courses being delivered online in less than a day that has no group work, no engagement, mm. the quality is absolutely ridiculous. How that then determines if a person is right or fit and sound mind mm. to engage as a mental health first aider, do they have the requisite skills and soft skills to engage as a mental health first aider? Are they confident? And can they have conversations in confidence without telling the whole business about that that particular person's background, their story, what's going on. We so do not check up that. on the screen for a while, you know, because this is a subject. Let's just get on to that, you know, about mental health first aid and and um, whether the focus was right and whether whether we know if it's working or not. But one of the big key parts of that, as as you've led us on to there, is about is it the right people even from the beginning? Are we? Are we selecting the right people, the right people, I suppose, who who want to be involved in this stuff, A, not just because they're told, but B, that have the right personality, the right people skills to be involved? So there's a number, I have to say, uh, I know throughout the business, there are some fabulous, caring, caring, understanding, empathetic, good people, people willing to listen people willing to signpost, and many of them, as I said, got involved long before any mental health first aid training came out. They would be that person you go and have a quiet word with if you had a concern. There was always one place. And in mm. the absence of that, there used to be HR people on site 
we don't have that now, which is such a shame because the mm. HR people on site invariably took a pastoral role. It wasn't just about terms and conditions and hours worked and holidays, but it was a pastoral role there. And harken back to days of old, you know, long before everything was centralised or it went to an Autobot system. Mm. which again doesn't help because if you don't have that support within a construction project, construction site, how do you let off steam or does yeah. that steam just continue to build until such times as your body, your mind says, I can't take anymore. And that mental feeling of the, the, the ill health as it was then affects the physical, then it affects the social, it affects obviously the workplace, it affects the finances. And it just becomes this terrible, terrible ongoing circle that can't be stopped. Now, take about the mental health first aiders. And I'll, I'll come back and say again, many of the training courses are offered to office personnel who do not step foot on site. The hmm. vast majority of the suicides and mental ill health comes from the population of those who are frontline, out there digging the, the excavations, out there in cold rivers trying to put flood protection schemes together, out there in the snow putting up power lines, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You get, mm. you get the feel for this. Yeah. So where's their support? Where is their help? And even with the mental health first aiders, many of the mental health first aiders are supposed to be part of a mental health first aid network. A network of what they don't engage with one another across across business. Invariably, they've got their own job to do. They are also offering mental health first aid support, as it were, as a voluntary basis on top of their own workload. If mm -hmm. the workload is ridiculously long, we're, we're expecting people in the business to work 60 plus hours a week. That's unsustainable over a period of time. So we need to be saying, are we doing the right thing? We're, we're expecting people to take on this training. We're expecting them to fulfill a role. We don't audit, are they the right person? We don't assess, are they the right person? We don't check in with them to see, how's the experience going? You know, are, are you mm. right? Are you needing any additional support? Because no, 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 the mental health first aiders are just supposed to get on with it because that's what they do. That's what they would have done. The good ones would have done anyway, long before the mental mm. health first aid training. In addition to that, one day training course so that was an online example i think it was 25 pounds or thereabouts it was low in price mm -hmm. and i'm not saying the pricing has anything to do with the quality no but, but you know it's like it would, go it for suggest, price. Yeah. I, I, I would suggest that there's something not quite right there there's others for myself i went through mental health first aid training course in person three solid days i can tell you right now i was physically and emotionally drained mm. at the end of each single day because astrid white who was the chief executive of mental health aberdeen at the time mm. astrid put her through us through our paces and my heavens she put us through our paces with mm. very relevant scenarios we had role play we were observed not everyone attending that training past the training not right. everyone saw the training through to the end because no. it was in depth further it's not just that, an automatic wave through then it's absolutely not and yet other others are so how does that set one up with the right tool set the skill set to go out and support others it doesn't mm. now what i can say as well is we say okay you're a mental health first aider now because you have that certificate on you mm. go and we're putting your name up, if, if your name, your phone number and your picture up around the construction site so people can get in contact with you. Really? 
So again, the disparity there is when your name, your picture, your phone number is given out for all to see, if you are the only mental health first aider on site, how many people will want to engage with you because you are seen as a mental health first aider? And will mm. you then report that back to management? There's a huge disparity there. Yeah. In addition, I know that there are some mental health first aiders who are trade union reps, for example, because the trade unions, again, following on governmental guidelines, decided to put a lot of their reps through mental health first aid training, which is okay. great. But some of them do not necessarily have that requisite skill set. They're more interested in legalities, the union union um, guidelines, policies, as the employer doing right by da da da, and don't always necessarily either have the time or the inclination to no. deal with people on a one to one basis. And the individual necessarily Absolutely. want to go to the same person for both. I don't. I don't know exactly. Yeah. There's there's that. The other point um, I, I'd like to make when it comes to mental health first aid is there's not one answer or one solution mm. for every individual who is having some concerns with their mental health. Everyone comes with a different story. Everyone has mm. a different background. Some go through periods of mental ill health, which is much more advanced than others, um, where they will not look to be signposted, where they will not talk to external bodies. And then that sits with the mental health first aider. Now, mm. if you've not been trained properly in any form of counselling. You've not been trained in how to deal with addiction. You've not been trained in how to deal with suicidal, suicidal tendencies, how to really engage with the person one-on-one -on -one and make sure that they don't fall over the edge. You've not been trained in financial issues, social ills of the day. You've not been trained in EDI, equality, diversity, inclusion, fairness, inclusion, respect. You've not been trained in all of those aspects or have key knowledge of how to address those aspects and signpost or alternatively if they will not accept the signposting for you to give them advice mm -hmm. how then can you affect the role of mental health first aider there are to my knowledge i am not clinically trained i've had a year of psychology at university before i you know i did my mm -hmm. um, honors degree in criminology and law um, i have had some counseling training I've obviously undertaken suicide first aid training and I take every opportunity I can as a person to update my knowledge, reading books, listening to podcasts, <laughs> reading LinkedIn posts, talking to other people yeah. in the field. I am by no means any form of expert. Let's be very clear about it. I am not, and I mm -hmm. say that wholeheartedly, there are people out there far, far better than I to query what's going on with terms mm -hmm. of mental health and, and construction, absolutely. But from a people perspective, I know we are not anywhere close to where we need to be, A, in trying to identify our mental health first aiders, giving support to mental first aiders, training them and continually training them and continually sending out the message that even though you have mental health first aiders there, there is no stigma attached to approaching them. I've had individuals ask me to take a coffee with me outside of the workplace because they couldn't feel that they could come speak to me in the workplace because other people would be floating about an open plan office. Where is that? That that has to stop. So where is the support? We don't yet have that support there for mm. the Mental Health First Aid Network. Now, even with the Mental Health First Aid, work, First Aid Network as it is, the HSE reported last year 
and, and a report that they undertook both in 2018 and then I did another lit review um, just in December 2023 there that indicated that mental health wasn't actually, or the use of mental health facilities wasn't actually making any difference. Whether it be in the construction sector or any other construction, any other sector. So why? Hmm. Why then should we operate mental health facilities? If it's not making a difference, or is it because companies think we'll just tick box that exercise? We've got mental yeah. health first aider. They don't have a proper holistic mental health and well-being policy with all the various initiatives associated, and they are just using the mental health first aiders as a an individual that can be used. A tool. Is there, is there that any chance no you know, is there any chance as well there's a bit of kind of, you know, yeah, we're okay, we've done that now. It's in place, so we're good. <laughs> that that kind of actually there's no stopping and reflecting to say, let's in three months, six months' time. I mean, you mentioned earlier on someone even checking in with the mental health first aiders, and, and that's that's a useful tip in itself, right? That, but, but, but yeah, this idea that actually, okay, you've done it, but you're measuring it. What were you expecting? Yeah. Is it in line with that? And invariably, invariably, it's not, you know, and, and again, you've got to say, well, if mental health of all descriptors in there mm. is such a concern, why is it just that we should have a mental health first aid network and that's as far as it goes? Now, mm. I know that the um, Crown Commercial Service um, had posted just tail end last year there again, about the need to extend the Mental Health First Aid Network. Of course it would. Why? Because the Scottish Government has included Mental Health First Aid um, programme as part of their 10-year mental health strategy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was back in 2017. We've still got a while to go, and yet it's not working. And yet, whether it be the Scottish Government, the UK Government, they're still insisting on the use of Mental Health First Aid. Now, Alan, I'll be very clear, don't get me wrong, I am delighted that more people are receiving training because it mm. might be that if they can't assist others because they don't feel confident enough or they just don't wish to engage with others it might help them as individuals understand yeah really understand their own mindset understand the the, the need for them to be diligent and taking care of themselves you know about self-care and uh, it might make them understand that when they are looking to effectively manage supervise people that they take into account those people and how life can also affect the workplace and vice versa mm -hmm. and that they make alternative arrangements with them so it's not all doom and gloom no. certainly not but there's a lot a lot more required in terms of how do we evaluate how do we assess how do we then empower the first aiders that we've established are fit for purpose you know yeah. i can talk I, I, I mean i can regularly everybody that knows me knows i talk alan you've you've heard it but i'm also a very good listener yeah, uh, and good. an active listener who, that will do my absolute best to try and help support mm. people who are struggling at, at, yeah. you know at, at any given time and there are so many many mental health first aiders and those who have not been trained as mental health first aiders of very similar mind and will do whatever that they can do but it's still not addressing the issue where we have so much spend and cost to our industry, cost to our mm -hmm. society, cost to our communities at large, never mind that, 
the cost to those individuals, what's causing it. There is nothing there relating to causal analysis. Yeah. Oh, we've come up with this program, but where's the causal analysis? Now, with my, my OSH, Occupational Safety and Health hat on, and I'm sure there's going to be non many people on the call going to be thinking similar. Where's the cause? We always look at the root cause. How can we put in a solution without understanding the cause? Why yeah. can we understand how best to address that? And there is no generalization. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. you know, this is a great idea. Let's put together a mental health first aid program because you know, Australia adopted it way back in 2001, was it? 2001. And it seemed to work there in, in that isolation. Let's bring it over to the UK. It has not been developed suitably for workplace. It has not been developed suitably specifically for the construction industry. So how mm. then can that be evaluated as a constructive solution to oh, an yeah. ongoing issue where we don't understand the cause? Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I, you know, in, in amongst all of this, I think I shared this with you before, but I, I was in a room with a, an MD of a large developer and, and he was talking about that they, slightly oddly, they were gaining quite a lot of staff from tier one building contractors because these people were um, kind of fed up with what their employer was doing around well-being and things like that. Not, not because I think they disagree, you know, not because I don't think they valued what was being done, but because it was just being done because, well, you know, we've had to tick a box here and tick a box there, rather than explaining to the staff, right, here's why we're going to do this, because, as you said, the causation thing, because this is going on, because we've spotted this, or this came from you guys as part of a kind of regular survey or part of our nationwide tour or whatever, it's actually being done because a contract we wanted said we needed to do something on this. Um, yeah. So people And that were, is the case. Were, um, yeah. Clearly in the public procurement contracts during 2018 to 2020, and still to this day, it is expected. If a contractor is signed up to consider a constructor scheme, it is expected, you know, mm -hmm. and that's a tick box that will go towards that scoring. Um, and don't get me wrong, that, that that's great, but it's not with the feel and the real need to protect, preserve, value, mm. respect their people. It's not with any view of saying this is about people, this is about money, mm -hmm. pure money, yeah. bottom line. But what I, what I can't get, and I, I've yet to fathom, think about that figure that we used right at the very front of our, our presentation of, of the mm. podcast. We're talking billions here. Yeah. So some companies would rather pay lip service, tick box exercise, not addressing the issue and lose billions of money across every year. What on earth? Why would we do that? That makes no sense whatsoever to me. Um, and it's just flabbergasting. We have pockets of excellence. Let's be very clear. We do have pockets of excellence where we have contractors going above and beyond where they will have not just mental health first aiders, they have well-being buses, they have occupational health teams in their businesses, not always going around the sites, invariably they're based at centralised in head offices, etc. Um, buses, yeah, McLaughlin Harvey, for example, I used to work for them. I've made mm -hmm. no mistake about that. I was delighted to see that. They go around all the sites, but at six-month increments. So what happens the rest of the time? That bus is absolutely fantastic. However, you know, there, there are construction workers that's open up to all their personnel and all their subcontractors, and they'll do the BMI tests, 
um, they do uh, blood pressure tests, you know, glucose, etc. There's a occupational right. health nurse on board. There's a masseuse on board, and you know, mental health first aiders are there, and, and the lighthouse charities here. And that's Fantastic. a great event. But what yeah. happens the rest of the time? You yeah. know, the, there are other organisations will have full time mental health nurses on board, but again, they are based in a centralised office not at site so where is the site element of that and in mm. terms of well-being we talk about let's have a well-being days let's have spa days let's have some head massage where does it go the office personnel are the guys out there in the excavations and the, the way up to their knees and beyond and muck or water etc do they have access to that no they don't so yeah. an, accessi you, an accessibility issue then with, with a it complete just being, accessibility yeah. issue and still coming back to that stigma if they do participate what is going to be said and mm. then the other point is we coming back to what i said earlier that cost to complete that program driver the client must need but what we need to be doing as a construction company our construction industry per se not just the company but as an industry is going to the clients particularly public sector clients and saying wait a minute Hold up here. Mm -hmm. The programs that you are expecting us to deliver to are unachievable. You are posing risk because under CDM regulations, the clients have a duty, right? And they should not be putting those and imposing ridiculous, ridiculous timescales on contractors. Now, what does a contractor do? Say, yep, Mr. Client, I hear you. We'll deliver to that. And then they put the pressure on the workforce. And then they put the pressure on the subcontract. And we have this ongoing vicious cycle, mm. which does not resolve the issue no. of this ever-increasing mental ill health phenomenon. I talked about, you know, the mental health masquerade. It's a masquerade because behind all the smoking mirrors, those people that we're working with day in, day out, across all of the hierarchy, across mm. all organisations, are needing more support. We're not there yet, and we've got a long, long way to go to address that. It's a masquerade because we have PR, but we're not delivering. It's a mm. masquerade because the focus and the, the expenditure, etc., relates to ill health, there's no bonus there for mental health. You know, how great are your people? How healthy are your people? How many have access to gymnasium that you might have given them access to or taken up the discounted gym membership? How many of them have dropped weight because they're in a healthy eating plan? How many of them are actually saying in any surveys, people surveys that, that the contractors may do, that they actually love their job, that they mm -hmm. feel valued they feel well they feel energized they feel positive how many can actually do that how many contractors even ask their people and then when they do invariably they'll only ask a small percentage and then turn that off because those small percentage invariably tend to be office personnel who will always give good news stories why will the site base not do so because invariably site-based people are self-employed um, or in temporary contracts agency workers or in zero hour contracts Where's the stability in that? And they know, irrespective of, oh, we've got a whistleblowing policy, oh, all views are respected. There's, there's, there's a term for that, and it's BS. And the BS basically means that, uh, I'm not going to say the language, I'm sure everybody knows what BS means. <laughs> no, that's why I don't believe I don't think I have one of them. <laughs> Let's just leave it. The reality, the reality is that's not the case. 
we know full well, and I know full well with my experiences on various sites with various contractors, subcontractors, etc. And also yeah. I deal with subcontractors on a day-to-day basis, how that actually reverts. Someone mm. raises an issue and they are either moved on to another site or they're moved from post, which again does mm. not deal with the issue. All yeah. it does is again reverberate this whole conversation about the dinosaurs and this machoism and it's still stigmatized and that has to stop Alan you know contractors as well some of the the companies they'll have their mental health first aid and they'll have their their mental health and well-being policy some might put in some fruit in the the canteens brilliant not everybody likes fruit but you know it's a start but what about the ongoing training for people about their mental health and not just bringing in mental health first aiders to come and deal when it's a, a reactive issue. Where's mm-hmm. the proactive training yeah. for everyone at all levels? Where's the bringing in of key speakers, you know, in, in this field that, that deliver mental health training, not just mental health first aid training, but mental health training across the whole gambit, stress awareness training, anxiety, um, mm-hmm. addiction, how to overcome addiction. You know, that I, I've dealt with so many and know so many fabulous people, probably some of them on this call, who deliver excellent training. But will the company mm-hmm. step up for that? No. What they'll do is they'll spend anywhere between, say, 400 to £3,000, thereabouts, for a one day for somebody to come in and speak for one day. Where's yeah, that training? It. Where's their ongoing consistency in valuing people? And yet, again, I'll reiterate, think about the costs. Let's go back to the billions of pounds that we're losing. Why? Sorry, it's sort of gone off topic there, Alan. I'm no, guilty. No, no, no. I've got, I've got like kind of three thoughts in my head and observations, I suppose, <clears throat> from all the stuff you've just said. There, one is that um, client piece, which is to say, it just it's, it's just crazy that you know this is a long thing to solve culturally, but where where we have clients kind of saying, yeah, can you guys make sure you have mental health first aiders and you've ticked this box and this box as part of the tender, but whilst you're at it, can you build things as quickly as possible? Yeah. Don't worry about the people. Just make sure it's built as quickly as possible. So as long as you've ticked that box, yeah, we're, we're all okay. Um, don't know, it seems, seems mad. And then the second one, um, you sent me through a list. I asked you about, you know, what are, what are good companies doing in this? And, and we'd have to have a part two on this podcast to go through the list of things you sent me as to what, employers are doing in this area but the you know the one thing that strikes me is just how holistic it needs to be and I think that's what you were saying there you know just doing one or two things isn't enough because those particularly if those one or two things just happen once or twice a year because a year's a long time and and as we know through people's mental health and well-being it, it isn't a steady thing it goes up and down and it fluctuates and and you need that holistic support and all these other good things that you've mentioned to me, to be available at all times. F- final thing, I have a question come in here, uh, if it's an interesting one, I wonder what your view is, it's um, from Sarah Tong, who's asked, would it be possible to create a network of mental health first aiders across construction so that we can sort of check in on each other and, and work with each other? Wow, Sarah, I would love to see that. Um, actually, it's like conversation, with with Alan earlier prior to this this podcast about the need 
not just from across construction in terms of contractors, but the need for clients, for all stakeholders, for third parties to come together to put together a proper plan. So that not that we can just check in on each other, but we're all appraised of the best training, the best methods, the latest research, etc. So that we're all appraised for that. But that has to be bought into with the contractors, the employers in mind too. What tends to happen, sorry, there's my earpod coming out. What tends to happen <laughs> is that only a certain number of people will be invited to attend something like that. Why? Because employers are busy looking at the bottom line. You know, no, I'm mm -hmm. paying you for this role. So you mm -hmm. might be an engineer, Sarah, I'm not quite clear, clear what your role is. But for example, if you were an engineer, then that's what you're paid for. You're paid to engineer for those 12 hours a day when you're you're on site. The mental health first aid thing comes in. You need to do that, but that's a kind of volunteer capacity bolt on mm. to your role. Um, and as a bolt on to your role, you're still expected to complete all the daily tasks, even mm. if those daily tasks do not fit within those 12 hours. So my question is, I love the idea. Um, absolutely, I'd be up for that. But where do you fit that all in? And how do we bring together a network that everyone can be involved in so that's mm. a challenge to all yeah. um, concerns to think about but i suspect we're probably getting more questions and comments through and i'm not picking them all up here so afterwards oh, i promise is that we will review them and i'll share them with yvonne and okay. and as and when time allows and i don't know how yvonne has any time in our day but uh but if we can find some we'll definitely come back to people on it so we are 40 minutes in now yvonne so probably for all you and i as i said would happen could talk forever on this um I probably need to move us on to to the end game, if you will, which is to talk about uh, a little bit about you again. Um, a question, <laughs> sorry, a question I, I have mentioned to you, I ask everybody on this podcast is kind of what's made them successful. But in a discussion you and I had, I, I wanted to tailor that a little bit for you, which is to ask a bit about kind of what is success to avoid? So success to me is probably different from a lot of people. Um, I no longer buy into the corporate needs to be climbing ladders. I've been a director, I've been a managing director um, of various companies, both construction and logistics and transport uh, industries. Um, I've held my own in academia um, as a university lecturer. Um, I've had papers published. My success, in all honesty, comes from the simplest things in life. Being able to wake up in the morning breathing on the right side of the soil mm -hmm. and knowing that I can take pleasure at the simplest things in life, knowing that I can help in some small way to mm -hmm. improve things for, for both our people and our planet. Um, I tend to use my voice a lot, so whilst I don't like speaking about me, Helen, I do like speaking to others about changing and, and, and often quite disrupting uh, mm -hmm. the marketplace um, and, and certainly within our industry to try and improve things. Um, I take great pleasure and success for me is, is seeing my sons growing, uh, having families of their own, the grandchildren's I am a grandmom. Um, the pleasure in the simplest things of birdsong, walking by a river, to me that's success. When you can wake in the morning, breathe, mm. and know that you're alive and know that I'm very, very, very blessed. And I know that I've seen throughout my life the, the highs and lows of life, you know, mm. Millionaire in paper, huge big eight bedroom house, pool, da 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 da, all the gadgets, etc. To homeless and back again. Mm. And you know, I find 
success is when you can wake up and recognize who you are, mm. what value you bring, and what value you can empower others to mm. know that they too also bring. Right. So the only regret I have <clears throat> is I wish we'd finished there because that was um, spot on. And I think I said to you briefly that um, <clears throat> for all this webcast and podcast series is called Constructing Success. I don't want it to just be about um, people who've set up businesses and led businesses and all this kind of stuff. I think success has to be different things to different people. And um, yeah, I wish I'd finished there because <laughs> the final thing I have to talk to you about is top three tips, right? So we, 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 where are we? Tip of the iceberg stuff here at best. But if we were to give employers, construction organizations, anybody that's listening to this who wants to start somewhere, what are the sort of top three tips you would give them? Stop burying your head in the sand. Stop ignoring what's going on in your business because you're as culpable as anyone else. Um, the mere fact that you're signing up to... Um, mental health policy and not delivering on that policy or seeing it all through all the way through your people stop ignoring it stop ignoring your people and the feedback mm -hmm. you're receiving stop ignoring the fact that you are not retaining your personnel because they're going elsewhere yeah stop burying your head in the sand perfect so then tip two um uh, yeah so we always talk it in, in business, we always talk, there's a huge risk register for every business. You know, if you mm. go into project level, there's a project risk register for every project, every site has a, a risk register. To my mind, mental health and well-being has to be included in that. It's not just health and safety risk, but it is about mental health and well-being. Why? Because the exposure to that now is far, far greater than, for example, the numbers of people who are falling from height of a year, you know, the number of deaths, for example, through suicide outweigh the number of working at height injuries in any one given year. Never mind again, dare I say, the cost implications, and it's only going to increase. The more we put people in the line of fire, as we do every single day, operating by unsustainable business practices, work practices, we are going to see an increase. So be yeah. prepared to lose lots of money unless you start to address this and get it put on your risk register. Mm. And then number three, I guess, is something you touched on before, which is about measurement and understanding what's happening. Yeah, we right now, there are no, none, no, no reports at all anywhere to be found, certainly relating to the UK that relates to proper evaluation of the success of mental health first aid. There's no evidence of the success of the Mental Health First Aid Network. In fact, contrarily, mm -hmm. as I said, the HSE have indicated that it's not shown any, any form of success mm -hmm. um, and there's no measure of any impact. Again, if we're going to put in any form of programmes, what does that look like? How is mm -hmm. it being evaluated? How can we properly evidence that? And where is the impact? Put my um, CSR hat on, social value hat on. When it comes to social value um, initiatives, we have to evaluate what's required. We have to evidence it. You know, are there snapshots? Is there a statement coming in from somewhere? Has there been a case study written? And then effectively we need to determine what that impact is, not just in terms of monetary value, but how mm -hmm. did that affect those in the, the business, the wider community, society at large, and obviously within industry. That's what we need to do with mental health and wellbeing, to my mind. Thank you, Yvonne. So in the best part of 50 minutes there, we have covered absolute loads. And uh, yeah, I can't thank you enough for the passion you bring to this. And I suspect this 
uh, is part one of, of something which we'll have to do again at some point because um, you and I got talking about some other interesting subjects and I think we'll have to return to them. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, it just leads me to say we had a couple of comments coming in from people, uh, one from Craig, to this hopefully give you a boost for the day of on, Craig telling us uh, nice, yeah. you've been inspiring as always. Um, we've had another one in from uh, Peter Widdowson, also saying great to listen to you um and to tune into it and talking about his own situation so i think it's great that the audience are tuning in i thank everybody for giving up a bit of their time to uh, to listen to you and i um and yeah lots more to come thank you very much again avon thank you for joining thank us you. and for being a guest thank you Goodbye, very, very much for inviting thank you everybody take good care be safe be well thank you